0: I still remember the day that I fell asleep on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. No, really, I did. My best friend Dennis and I were down in Monterey, diving one of our favorite locations, a place called Otter Cove. Dennis, by the way, is the model for Billy's character in my novel, Inca Gold Spanish Blood. Anyway, Otter Cove was, or actually is, a fantastic dive site. It's well protected, even on the worst of days, and it's pretty shallow. I mean, you'd have to swim a good quarter mile offshore to get much beyond 30 feet of water. Anyway, we jumped in, swam to the bottom, checked each other's gear, and then headed off to do what we liked to do. For Dennis, that meant swimming around the area, looking for oddities, and peeking into every hole and cave he could find. For me, it meant lying on my belly on the bottom with my regulator resting on my hands, watching a parade of little critters swim and crawl across the sand. This was pure magic and one of the most relaxing things I could ever imagine doing. So relaxing, in fact, that apparently I fell asleep and I didn't wake up until Dennis came back when his air was low and grabbed me by the shoulder to get my attention. That was exciting. Anyway, I used to be a professional scuba diver. Before I got into the world of technology, I was part owner of a diving business in California, and because of my interest in marine biology, I became an instructor and I also did a lot of commercial diving as well as underwater photography and cinematography. It was a lot of fun, although the paychecks usually left a lot to be desired. The commercial work paid far better than teaching scuba, but it also came with a whole set of issues that often made it hazardous. Okay, more hazardous than plain old scuba diving. So I didn't do anywhere near as much of it as I could have. And I'm glad, as you'll see. Now, one cool thing about running a dive shop is that you meet a lot of really, really interesting people. So interesting, in fact, that a lot of them, or versions of them, are key characters in my novel. In fact, every single thing in Inca Gold actually happened, including the spear through the guy's wrist, and every single person I describe in the book is real, although some of them are composites of more than one person for all kinds of very good reasons, which will become clear if you ever read the book. Anyway. Because people know that diving was a big part of my life for a long time, I often get asked questions about aspects of the sport that the average diver never gets to do, like really deep diving or wreck diving or night diving or rough water diving or commercial diving, the kind where you wear a helmet and you're connected to the surface or to a chamber by a collection of hoses. Well, my summary response to questions about commercial diving is typically that the only reason to dive deep is to discover that there's no reason to dive deep. But a lot of people press me on the subject because they're curious. So I thought for this episode, I'm going to talk about the technical aspects of diving, but in a fun way, with plenty of anecdotes to make it interesting. And by the way, I've decided to make this a two-part series. So I'm going to do sport diving, what we typically call scuba, in this episode, and I'll do the commercial stuff, what some people call hard hat diving, in the next episode. So because it's necessary and because I have to get it out of the way, I've got to do some physics here. So unless you understand some of the science behind scuba diving, you can't appreciate the marvels, the hazards, and the complexity of doing it safely. This is not designed to scare you into not diving. Quite the opposite. A good diver is a safe diver, so consider this a lesson in dive safety. Okay, physics. When you're diving, you're breathing compressed air that comes out of the tank on your back and passes through that regulator in your mouth. The regulator's job is to regulate. It's basically designed to make sure that the air that's delivered to you is at a pressure that's just slightly higher than the pressure around you. Otherwise you'd have to suck the air out of the tank which wouldn't be fun. Think how much fun it is to suck a really thick milkshake through a straw. It's kinda like that. This is important because as you go deeper the pressure on your body increases, so the regulator is designed to adjust the pressure of the air coming into your mouth as you go deeper. Does it make sense? Good. The deeper you go, the higher the air pressure is coming out of the regulator and going into your mouth. Now there are two laws of physics that every diver in the world has to know. The first is called Boyle's Law. All it says is that when you're talking about a gas, like air, The pressure and the volume of the gas are directly related in a linear way. Imagine a cylinder filled with air with a piston on top. If you push down on the piston, and we're assuming that the piston is sealed so that air can't escape, so if you push down on the piston, the pressure of the air in the cylinder goes up. In fact, if you halve the volume by pushing down on the piston, you double the pressure. It's a linear relationship, and that's Boyle's Law. The other law of physics that every diver needs to know is called Archimedes' Principle. Here's what it says. If you put an object in water, it will displace an amount of water equal to its own volume. Well, that seems pretty obvious, right? Makes sense. If you immerse a cube of concrete in water that is one cubic foot in size, it will displace one cubic foot of seawater. That's pretty clear. But here's the not-so-obvious part, the part that Archimedes kind of zeroed in on. If the water that gets displaced weighs less than the object displacing it, the object will sink. If the displaced water weighs more than the object displacing it, the object will float. So in other words, all you have to do to build a ship that floats is to make it weigh less than the water it displaces. I mean think about that. An aircraft carrier weighs less than the water it displaces. Now here's where the magic happens. A cubic foot of seawater weighs 64 pounds. That's probably more than you thought, right? So the average adult has a volume of about two and a half cubic feet, which means that the average adult displaces two and a half cubic feet of seawater, which is about 160 pounds. So as long as a person weighs about 160 pounds or so, they'll float just fine in the ocean without any danger of sinking. Now in California, where I did most of my diving, The water is cold, really cold. I mean, even the beaches in Southern California have water that is not your friend. Up north where I lived, the water averaged about 52 degrees on the surface, and then it drops quickly as you go deeper. In other words, you ain't going anywhere near that water without a wetsuit, at least not for very long. Okay, so what's a wetsuit? Well, it's a quarter-inch thick form-fitted suit that's made up of a special kind of foam rubber called neoprene. If you look at a cross-section of neoprene, it's filled with tiny little air-filled bubbles. And by the way, wetsuits keep you warm in a very special way. They allow a thin layer of water to get between your skin and the suit. And yes, that initial influx is quite exhilarating. Your body heat quickly warms the water to body temperature, and the quarter-inch rubber insulates it and keeps you warm. It works really, really well. So well, in fact, that we'd often unzip the top of our wetsuits to flush cold water into the suit to keep from overheating. Now I want you to think about it. You've just surrounded yourself with more volume, the suit, Most of it tiny air bubbles. But that added volume doesn't weigh very much, so you're going to float even more. So you're thumbing your nose at poor old Archimedes. Translation, there is no way in the world you are ever going to get underwater in that suit. It's too buoyant. You need help. And that help comes in the form of a weight belt, which is a bunch of lead weights strung on a belt that helps you overcome the added buoyancy from the suit you just put on to keep from freezing to death. Okay? problem solved. Now you can get below the surface. But this is where our friend Boyle kicks back in. Remember the relationship between pressure and volume? Well, as you descend, the growing pressure shrinks the bubbles in your suit. In fact, in the ocean, between the surface and 33 feet, the pressure from the dense seawater actually doubles, which means that your buoyancy drops by about half which means that you're now wearing too much lead on your belt and you start to sink like a stone. I've seen weight belts slide right off a diver's hips because their suit compressed so much. So to overcome this problem, divers wear a buoyancy compensation vest that they can blow or pump air into. If you think about it, by inflating the vest just a little bit, you add volume without adding weight, so your buoyancy goes up. you got to be careful though. If you add too much, you can shoot to the surface like a bottle rocket. Remember, as you ascend, the pressure drops pretty fast, allowing Boyle's Law to take over. Lower the pressure, the volume goes up. That air in your vest and the bubbles in your suit start to expand really fast, and this can lead to all kinds of nasty things happening if you don't control your buoyancy and the speed of your ascent on your way back to the surface. Now, here's another fun fact. I've known divers who went to the dentist to get a filling, and then a few days later, they went diving. Everything was fine until they were ready to end the dive and head for the surface when they discovered that that higher-pressure air that they'd been breathing throughout the dive had made its way through a tiny pinhole in the filling and was now trying to get out. Imagine that very sensitive nerve in your tooth now being subjected to high-pressure air. It's called a tooth squeeze, and it's rare, and it's not serious, but it is seriously painful. It's a terrible, no good, very bad way to learn about Boyle's Law. And by the way, the same thing can happen to your sinuses. Okay, enough about that. Let's shift gears and talk about how all these laws of physics really come into play and why you have to be careful when you're diving. Let's start with a little chemistry. Hey, you've already done physics. After that, chemistry's going to be easy. Even though Hollywood likes to talk about the oxygen tanks that scuba divers wear, they're not full of oxygen. They're full of plain old air, although it's been filtered and all the water's been taken out of it. Now, air is made up of 78% nitrogen and only about 20% oxygen. The rest is other trace gases like argon and a few other things. But pay attention to that 78% nitrogen number and that 20% oxygen number, because they're about to get really interesting. Have you ever heard of nitrous oxide? It's called laughing gas, and it's used as an anesthetic. Well, nitrogen, it turns out, which is one of the primary constituents of nitrous oxide, when it's breathed under pressure, can be a pretty strong narcotic agent. As in, it'll knock you on your butt if you're not careful. So there you are as a scuba diver, breathing an air mixture that's almost 80% nitrogen. Oh yeah, and you're breathing it under pressure. It makes you drunk, not the best of states when you're underwater. They used to call this effect rapture of the deep. Today they call it nitrogen narcosis, and divers are taught something called Martini's Law, which simply says that after the first 50 feet of depth, each additional 50 feet adds the impact of one very dry martini on an empty stomach. Again, not good when you're deep underwater. Now here's another interesting fact. Did you know that pure oxygen is poisonous? Yep, it can be, when it's breathed under pressure. If you breathe oxygen at a pressure of two atmospheres, that's about 28 pounds per square inch, it can cause convulsions and blindness and other nasty things, neither of which you want during a dive. Luckily, most divers never get anywhere near that, so they don't have to worry about breathing oxygen at that level of pressure. So oxygen toxicity doesn't become a problem until it does. Now here's the deal. Seawater is much, much denser than air. In fact, a one inch square column of atmosphere from sea level all the way up to the top of the troposphere weighs exactly 14.7 pounds. In other words, one atmosphere of pressure is 14.7 pounds per square inch or PSI. But because seawater is so much heavier than air, it only takes a 33-foot column to weigh 14.7 pounds. So for every 33 feet that you descend into the ocean, you add one atmosphere of pressure to your body. From the surface down to 33 feet, you go from one to two atmospheres. The pressure doubles. At 66 feet, the pressure triples. At 99 feet, you have four atmospheres compressing your body, and so on. Now, normally this isn't a problem because your body's mostly water anyway, and water isn't compressible. But those air spaces, like your lungs, your sinuses, and your middle ears, can be compressed. So you have to equalize the pressure in them using techniques that you learn in class. It's really easy to do. But now let's complicate things a little bit. As you descend, the regulator feeds you air at higher and higher pressures to overcome the increasing ambient pressure. Remember, you don't want to have to suck the air out of the tank. You just want it to come to your mouth. That's just way too much work. What this really means is that the partial pressures of the gases that make up that air are also going up. So that nitrogen hits you harder and faster at depth, and it gives you the giggles. And the oxygen? Well, here's the deal. Since the oxygen makes up 20% of air, you know, 02 You'd have to go down to a depth where you're breathing air at 10 atmospheres for it to become a problem. Remember, I said that oxygen at 2 atmospheres can be dangerous. Well, when you're breathing air and oxygen is 20% of the gas, but you're breathing it at 10 atmospheres, the partial pressure of the nitrogen part of the air is hitting you at you know, a much higher rate, and the partial pressure of the oxygen is hitting you at 2 atmospheres because 0.2 times 10 is 2. And that's bad news. Now, luckily, you don't get to 10 atmospheres until you hit a depth of 297 feet, which, as a sport diver, is a dive you'll only do once because you will not be coming back. So sport divers don't have to worry about oxygen toxicity. At least they didn't until rebreathers came into the game. A little bit of history here. During World War II, the Navy had a group of very specialized divers called UDT, Underwater Demolition Team Divers. They would swim out to enemy ships and attach limpet mines to their hulls and then sink them in the harbor. The problem is that a lot of the divers wouldn't come back and they couldn't figure out why. The reason it turned out is interesting and really sad. Instead of regular scuba gear, UDT divers wore oxygen rebreathers because they don't give off bubbles and would therefore make it very hard for them to be detected. The pure oxygen that they breathed through the rebreathers was recirculated and filtered so divers could stay underwater for very long periods of time. The problem is that physics became their enemy. If they descended deeper than 33 feet, the point where the pressure doubles, they'd be breathing oxygen at two atmospheres which is the place where oxygen toxicity kicks in. And since some of these ships had really deep hulls, they'd occasionally go that deep, and you can just figure out the rest. Some sport divers today use rebreathers. I'm not a fan, but that's just me. So for the vast majority of sport divers, this isn't something you ever have to worry about, but you do have to know about it. Now, I hope I'm not scaring you away from the sport, because that is in no way my intent. But it's a completely different environment down there that your body's not designed for, which means you have to make all kinds of alterations and modifications in it to allow yourself the freedom to visit the underwater world. Without the right knowledge and skill, it can be a hazardous place. But if you know what you're doing, which is what you get when you take a course, diving will change your life. Okay, on to other weird things that can happen to divers thanks to physics. If you take a deep breath on the surface through your snorkel, no scuba now, you're just breath hole diving, and you dive to the bottom, hang around for a little while, then come back up, the pressure of the air in your lungs is the same as it was when you started. There's no net change from the pressure because you're not breathing compressed air. But if you head to the bottom on scuba and hang out at, let's say, 33 feet, where the pressure is twice what it is at the surface and then head up without exhaling, bad things can happen. Remember that the air in your lungs at depth is higher pressure than it is at the surface because the regulator had to deliver higher pressure air to overcome the pressure of the surrounding water that wants to keep it in the regulator. So if you were to go down to the bottom, take a deep breath, and then hold your breath while surfacing, you could be in really serious trouble. Remember Boyle's law The one that says that there's a one-to-one relationship between volume and pressure? Well, if you take that breath on the bottom and then hold your breath on the way up, here's what happens. The pressure in your lungs will be high, but the pressure outside your lungs will be dropping off until the outside is lower than the inside. When that happens, lung tissue can tear from the excess pressure, and when that happens, the little capillaries in your lungs can also tear, allowing air to leak into your bloodstream. This is called an air embolism, and it will ruin your day. Another thing that can happen is that air can leak out of the lung into the mediastinum, the space between the lungs, leading to a collapsed lung, or it can bubble into the skin, causing what's called subcutaneous emphysema. Now, none of these are pleasant, and at least one of them is life-threatening. The only treatment, if it happens, is to get the diver quickly into a decompression chamber, which is a room or a tank, where the pressure on the diver's body can be increased so that the air bubbles get small again. Boyle's law, remember. Then they let the pressure off very slowly so that the bubbles stay very small and don't create problems. Anyway, these are all called overpressure accidents, and they're the easiest thing in the world to avoid. Never, ever, ever hold your breath while you're diving. That's it. You can even inhale when you're coming up. Just be sure to exhale as well. Okay, let's move on to one more thing that can happen to divers if they're not careful. Decompression sickness, sometimes called the bends. Here's what happens. Remember, your body is mostly water, about 60% of it, actually. As you descend, the increased pressure on your body causes the air that you're breathing to dissolve into your tissues. And since you metabolize the oxygen, most of what gets dissolved is nitrogen. Not a problem. The gas dissolves into your tissues, but because you're at depth and therefore under pressure, it stays there in solution. Now, if you stay there long enough, you can saturate your tissues, meaning that the maximum amount of gas possible gets pushed into solution, and it just stays there. When that happens, you could stay down there for weeks without any further effect. You've hit the max. Nothing else is going to dissolve in. But sooner or later, you have to come back to the surface, and this is where things can get dicey. As you ascend, the pressure on your body drops off, that same pressure that's keeping all that gas dissolved in your tissues, including the connective tissue in your joints, along your spine, behind your eyes, and other choice places. So I want you to imagine the following, or if you're feeling adventurous, you can actually do what I'm about to describe. Take a warm can of soda, I'd do this outside if I were you, and shake it for about 30 seconds. Now point it away from yourself and pop the top. You see what happens? By releasing the pressure rapidly, the gas that's dissolved in the liquid comes out of solution very quickly, forming all those big bubbles. Now imagine that that's happening to the gases that are dissolved in your spinal fluid, or your joints, or in the spaces around the optic nerve behind your eyes. This is a recipe for another no-good, very bad day. Now I've known divers who got bent, as we used to call it. One of them is now in a wheelchair, Another got a bubble in one of her fingers and the pain was so great that she passed out. The only treatment is to very, very quickly get the diver into a decompression chamber Take them back down to the depth that they started at by raising the pressure in the tank and then slowly, slowly, slowly letting the pressure bleed away. This allows the bubbles to come out of solution very slowly and be dispersed through normal respiration. The process can take days, but it's worth it if it's an emergency. So how do divers avoid this? Well, it's easy. Don't dive deep. that's the easiest thing the decompression tables created by the u.s navy detail how deep you can safely go and how long you can stay there without having to decompress my recommendation to anyone who's thinking about getting close to the tables is to treat them merely as an informed suggestion remember those tables were developed using 18 year old divers with one percent body fat in prime physical condition characteristics that most of us can't begin to claim. So, don't push the tables. If you have to decompress after a dive, something that should only happen because you planned it that way, don't take chances. Usually what this means is that the dive boat has put regulators on very long hoses hanging over the side at the right depths so that you can ascend to, say, 20 feet, whatever the tables tell you to do, hang out there and breathe for whatever the tables say, Then ascend up to 10 feet and do the same until you've met or exceeded the required decompression time. These decompression stops are designed to give your body time to slowly off-gas the excess nitrogen safely. But decompression diving is inherently hazardous and inordinately boring except when you're hanging there at 20 feet for 30 minutes decompressing and you're surrounded by a school of three foot barracudas that are intensely interested in all those shiny chrome things hanging on your body in the sparkly sunlight that reaches you in that nice clear water. Truthfully. The best thing to do is to stick to dives that don't require decompression. Now, according to the tables, a sport diver can go to about 60 feet for about 60 minutes and still be within the table limits. The good news is that very few divers can dive to that depth on a single tank and stay there for an hour. So most of us are golden, but don't take the chance. It's not worth it. Okay, enough about the downside of diving. If you use common sense and you practice the lessons that you're taught in your certification course, and folks, please, if you're going to dive, get certified, you'll have an experience that is just about the most spiritual thing you will ever do. The journey below the surface is magical. In our next episode, we're going to take a look at the world of commercial diving, which is a whole other animal. These are people who often work at depths of hundreds of feet, which means that all those challenges I just described are things they have to deal with on a regular basis and a lot more. I'll tell you how they do it in the next episode. See you there.